In this episode of the O'Reilly Data Show, I speak with Ira Cohen, co-founder and chief data scientist at Anadot. And full disclosure, I am an advisor to Anadot. Since my days in quantitative finance, I've had a long-standing interest in time series analysis. Back then, I used statistical and data mining techniques on relatively small volumes of financial time series data. Today's applications and use cases involve data volumes and speed that require a new set of tools for data management, collection, and analysis. And on the analytics side, some of the most interesting work, I think, are being done by Ira and his team. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to The Data Show, Ira. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a little bit of your background. You have a PhD in CS, is that right? Yeah, it's actually electrical and computer engineering. So what, uh, what was your area of focus in, uh, in grad school? So I actually started thinking that I'm a signal processing guy and uh, moved to image processing, but then uh, went on the slippery slope for, uh, and went to machine learning. Um, and completely uh, got submerged into the machine learning area. This was back in early 2000. And my focus, has, my focus there has been on uh, analyzing video, uh, facial recognition, facial expression recognition, uh, using semi-supervised methods. So this was, a, this was basically uh, your research area when you were in school? Yes. So I studied in the uh, University of Illinois uh, under a professor in ECE called uh, Thomas Wang. And uh, this, was his, this was the area that the entire group worked on, computer vision uh, and a lot of machine learning research around that. So this was, uh, I think it, this was before basically the whole computer vision uh, area blew up with deep learning. And uh, it's interesting when you mentioned signal processing, because that that might come in handy to what we're going to talk about later. What you're exactly. Doing now. And actually, this is, this is one of the reasons that uh, I'm, I've always been drawn to analyzing time series data with machine learning tools. So you got a PhD. So the natural question is, uh, did you ever consider becoming a professor? Um, so I considered it a bit, but uh, I was always drawn to more uh, practical application of research and less to the uh, uh, theoretical aspects of research. And I thought that uh, uh, industry is a much better place for, um, for someone who is interested in practical applications. And therefore, I, did, I went into industry. And I went first to research labs, uh, you look back at research lab, and then moved to uh, HP software, which is the software arm of uh, HP. So uh, when, at the time when you were at uh, HP labs, was that uh, kind of a research position in the sense that you, did you interact with product groups or were you purely uh, pursuing uh, kind of uh, uh, futuristic research projects? So I actually, because I did, I do like practical stuff. I always uh, try to find the the customers, if you will, of any new technology. So when I started out at HP, it was a research uh, research agenda around applying machine learning techniques to uh, system data and IT the IT type data and. Even though there were a lot of people skeptical around it, uh, we did both basic research, but immediately uh, uh, looked for the kind of internal customers at HP that will take that research once it's proven itself and, and apply it into the, uh, into the HP products. 
So by the time I met you, I think uh, you were pretty high up in the uh, HP software. You were the chief data scientist. So what were you? What kind of uh, uh, projects were you working on at that point? So there were actually quite a few. Uh, we are, are we had a small team of data scientists, and we split our work into two. Uh, so at one point, area at this, point, at this point, were you guys calling yourselves data scientists? <laughs> so. Initially, no. Uh, we started calling ourselves data scientists, I think, around 2011. Uh, before that, I had to start every meeting by explaining uh, first that I'm do we're doing machine learning and then explaining what the heck is machine learning uh, and what is it good for. But in around 2011, I guess, uh, we, we, we could stop explaining that uh, because it became much more, uh, I mean, the hype began, and uh, we could stop explaining why you need, why the company even needs us, and what the heck is it that we're doing. And we could start just explaining what you could do, just showing them what you could do with uh, with the data that they're already collecting. And a lot of the data they're collecting, I would suspect, kind of is along the same lines of uh, analysis you're doing now, right? Kind of this event data time series. Is that right? Right, right, and then but there was a there was a mixed bag. There was uh, there were a few the way the way our team worked. We worked on a few projects where we created the innovations. Uh, for example, analyzing log analytics, analyzing log files, and basically large scale log events. Um, there were some text analytics around uh, incidents and tickets and things of that sort. But we also had a, a parallel program where we would actually train developers inside the organization to become, we would call it a data, data science specialist, not, not scientists, but rather specialists where we would teach them basic techniques. They were developers and analysts in particular groups, and then they would go and apply it in their, uh, in their products. That actually accelerated quite a bit the uh, the type of uh, the data science and the uh, capabilities in a lot of the different products because we actually trained people within the products to do some some basic things with our supervision yeah I think I remember I think uh, you had uh, you guys developed an internal tool which basically took business analysts and gave them data science powers. Is that right? That's right. And uh, at the time, it was codenamed Titan. Today, it's actually, uh, I believe it was released as something called Haven on Demand. Uh, but I, I've not been following it closely, I have to admit. So the, the target user there is someone who doesn't program. Right. It's actually analysts. And... Uh, but uh, I, I remember you told me that even, uh, even uh, with that slick user interface, your team still went in and did some training and workshops. Yes, yes. And uh, we, we, we still had to do that, uh, first because the user interface was just being developed. It wasn't complete yet. And there are always, uh, it's always good for somebody who's using any tool, even if it's hiding a lot of the complexity behind the scene, to understand kind of what they're doing, to understand what are the type of things that can help them solve a particular problem. What are the limitations? You know, even understanding the concept. What are the limitations of a particular algorithm? How to read? Exactly. How to read the result? Exactly. Knowing what is what is accuracy? What is false positive? What I mean, these are not necessarily things that everybody knows. Um, so then, at some point, uh, uh, you and your co-founder started Anadot. So first of all, uh, what was the uh, genesis for Anadot? What uh, 
what made you think that at some point, oh, there's uh, there's enough people uh, struggling with this class of problem that we should start a company. So we can start with what class of problems are, is Anadot trying to address? Right. So so Anadot is looking to solve uh, so to solve a problem that we we call the the uh, business insight latency. And what do I mean? Uh, a lot of companies have BI tools. And they use BI tools for to collect data and to visualize data and to to generate reports out of data. And what kind of data? Uh, a lot of it is around, revolving around the business. So how did Anadot start? So David Dre, who's the CEO and uh, uh, my partner, um, he he worked as CTO of a uh, uh, Uber small Uber, Uber competitor called GetTaxi. Today it's called GetT. Um, and he would come to work every day, get his, uh, uh, get his uh, report of what happened yesterday. Things like how many rides were there in every city, uh, what, what the amount of revenue for the rides are, things of that sort that interest the CTO. So basically a, at dashboard, a dashboard that got computed the night before. Exactly. So he would look at that. Then with his eyes, he sometimes spotted, oh, there was a drop in number of rides in London. Why? Um, now, not necessarily zero, because obviously zero, it would be detected by any any type of uh, system. Uh, but he would go and investigate. And to go and investigate, he would have to dig, drill down into the data, apply, you know, vi start visualizing various cuts, like how many rides did the drop was caused because of some credit card provider that was that didn't work? Was it something general? Maybe it was raining and taxes weren't out, or you know, all sorts of reasons could be for that. But they had the data. He, he would ha just have to manually drill into it, they, and and often he would discover all sorts of issues that caused the drop. Some of them were under their control, some of them were not. But the ones that they were under their control could have been resolved much, much faster. And this is the latency. So getting the insights would take him 24 to 48 hours uh, of delay until he caught it. And when he looked back and realized look, um, we have all the data, it's collected in real time, we just don't see it because we have to use our eyeballs to understand what's going on. And in the meantime, we're bleeding out money. It's actually causing losses, direct losses to the company. In their, in their case, less rights. And often it would be some API that's broken with a credit card provider or something else, uh, some telco provider that's not working, some version of the app on a certain version of Android is, is broken, all sorts of things like that. Um, and and he looked guess, for guess, things. Uh, it sounds yeah. like there, there there were two. There's like two main steps here, right? So the first is uh, you need to provide some kind of uh, user interface decide that that suggests to someone, hey, there might be a problem over here, right? So some kind of uh, uh, right. a way for them to so that they don't have to rely on just their hunches and their eyeballing. And then secondly, exactly. the, the ability to once you highlight an area, to give them tools that they can do some kind of root cause analysis. Exactly, exactly, and 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 this is why we founded uh, Anodo. Okay. Exactly for that purpose. Interesting, interesting. So then, uh, uh, based on what you're describing, then fundamentally, uh, what types of data does Anodo deal with? So, it's so the fun, metric kind of data, event data. Exactly. So we're using what what Anodot is analyzing is basically uh, um, metric data, which is uh, any any anything that you can chart. Uh, 
anything that you can plot. So that has a timestamp and a value to it uh, and changes over time. Uh, and we analyze that to detect any changes in patterns in that. So um, that so that's pretty general, right? And so in terms of right. uh, there's a lot of. Uh, in fact, actually, uh, if uh, in the IT operation space, there's been tools that uh, do kind of at least the fundamentals of that, which is uh, here's uh, many many metrics, mil- maybe millions of metrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll store and capture it. And then maybe give you the ability to throw up a few charts and create your own dashboard. Uh, right. And in fact, actually, uh, there's a bunch of companies that are big companies like Netflix or Facebook that have released or open source uh, tools along these lines. So, right. Um, so based on what you're describing, it seems like you're you're you guys are going a step further in the in on the analysis side. Yes, exactly. And this is what's missing in a lot of these tools, uh, the, the analysis part, because it's not enough anymore to collect, to collect all the data and store it somewhere. Uh, and actually, the, the, the analogy fact, with the... In fact, IT, Ira, I yeah. think that, that part of the, of the pipeline is important, but yet also creates problems, right? Because once you st- start capturing millions of metrics, <laughs> uh, then now you have also a different problem, right? Exactly. Well, you have to manage, you have to now manage that system that collects all this data. But also make sense sense of all that data. And make sense of it, which is the hardest part. And like I said, it basically boils down to people generating kind of static reports that they get every day that is based on that data that they collected. But again, these reports are limited in their scope. They don't look at everything. Uh, and it's also, it's like you, you're going and asking the question. Uh, you'll get the answer from those systems on your questions, but maybe there are, maybe those questions are the irrelevant questions. They don't highlight what's really important for you to look at right now. That's interesting because actually uh, you just reminded me that many of these tools, actually uh, the main interface is that uh, asking the question part. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, Many of these tools can have some sort of query mechanism, right? So, right. Uh, and then, uh, so basically, you start out that you already have some kind of hunch. And then you run a query, and then you try to try to visualize whether or not your hunch is correct. Exactly. Or you you have your set of fixed things that you always look at, but when you have millions, you're probably looking only at a very very small fraction of those, uh, and you might be missing out on a lot of other things that uh, could help you detect things much faster uh, and, and, and find things that will help you basically reduce that latency, that business insight latency. So at a high level, what kinds of things, um, the kind of the fundamental things it seems like for metric data or event data that people look at are counts, right? So what are the top, what are the top items? And then as you point out, uh, anomalous events. Exactly. Um, but then uh, doing that at massive scale, not just, uh, not just in terms of the velocity and the speed at which the data is coming at you, but in many cases, actually, you have literally millions of these metrics. Exactly. And, and especially when you're looking at kind of uh, uh, business-related metrics, oftentimes people look at, they, they want to detect issues at very fine granularity. Uh, and that creates an explosion in the number of things you count. So let's say you want to 
go back to the ride company, let's say I'm Uber, I want to detect, I want to be able to detect that um, your rides from people ordering from iPhones, certain OS version in San Francisco, maybe even in a neighborhood of San Francisco using Uber X, uh, something is wrong there. Uh, and so if you multiply all the potential uh, uh, values for different properties that you have that you're measuring these counts on, it can explode to millions, billions, and even billions. And, and this is what people want to look at because they realize that when they don't, they miss out on important things that happen uh, that are either causing them losses of revenue or uh, they're missing out on potential uh, uh, opportunities. So I, it, it sounds like, uh, so uh, for the listeners out there who don't know, actually, so Anadot fo- focuses on basically un- uh, unlocking uh, massive amounts of time series that they, they have a lot of these proprietary uh, algorithms that scale to detect uh, patterns and anomalies and things like that. But uh, I think that then uh, that would, uh, to me, that would imply then that the user interface that a uh, end user views is informed by what you guys are seeing, the patterns you're seeing in the data, right? So in other words, Ira, if, I have, if I'm in a company and I have millions of metrics, when I log on to Anadot, do I get kind of a snapshot of, uh, here's what, Ben, here's what you should be looking at today? Yes, and, and that's exactly right. So, you know, a lot of systems have a concept called dashboarding. Dashboarding is where you put your regular things that you are used to look at, uh, the total revenue, the total amount of traffic to my website, uh, all sorts of things like that. We have a parallel concept, which we called Anoboard, which is uh, an anomaly board. Now, an anomaly board is basically showing you only the things that are right now uh, have some strange patterns to them. They're anomalous. So out of the millions, here you are. Here are the top 20 things you should be looking at because they have a strange behavior to them. So the board is something that gets populated by machine learning algorithms rather than the, the dashboard, which gets populated by the things that you used to look at, you, you, you always look at. So we only highlight the things that you need to look at rather than you know, a small subset of the things that you're used to looking at but might not be relevant for discovering anything that's happening right now. So do you, uh, do you end up actually uh, uh, using feedback from the users to improve your detection algorithms? In other words, my notion of anomaly might be different from, a different, from another user. Right. So, then- so, so, so we do. Um, we do, but we don't rely on it. So the design principle behind our system was to make sure that everything that we do uh, requires minimal configuration, if not zero. So send the data, our system will learn the data by itself. You don't have to do anything. But like you, like you said, even for the same data, even for the same uh, sensory data, one person in a company may look at anomalies differently than another in some cases, in some instances. So we do allow the users to provide feedback on anomalies. Uh, and again, we try to make it very simple. They can say, well, this is a good catch. And then the, the learning algorithms take that into account and improve them, improve the detection for the next time. They could say this is you know, an anomaly, but I don't care about it. It's not interesting to me. Uh, and there could be a lot of reasons why it's not interesting. Uh, and then they can give that feedback, direct feedback, or they can say, this is not an anomaly for me. And then the algorithm uh, learns that as well. So 
let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the analytics and uh, machine learning challenges that are uh, part of this domain these days. So mm-hmm. I, I remember back in the day when I worked in the hedge fund, obviously our fundamental data sets were financial time series. So we use kind of that standard uh, techniques at the time, but mostly the focus there was, you know, you didn't have that as many time series. So you could spend a lot more time on individual time series to analyze do some pattern recognition and right. and device trading strategies but now you're faced with millions of time series so what are what are some of the challenges and what are some of the things that are possible to do these days uh, at scale right. with mil- with uh, millions and millions of metrics right so i guess the answer is is uh, separated into two parts the first part is more on the algorithm side and the second part is on the scale side uh, and we address these uh, separately so the first part is on the algorithm side so we are a generic platform that can take any time series into it and will output anomalies now like any uh, like any anomaly de- detection method but actually most not even anomaly detection, any machine learning methods, we have success criteria. In our case, it's the the number of false positives should be minimal and the number of true detections should be the highest possible. Now, given those constraints and given that we are uh, agnostic to the data, so we're generic enough, we have to have a set of algorithms that will fit almost any type of metrics, any type of time series signals that get sent to us. Now, to do that, we had to develop, uh, uh, we had to observe and collect a lot of different types of time series data from various types of customers. And we have done that. We have um, about 40 million metrics in our system today running, flowing every every minute. Um, and we keep on looking on at that. So we had to design various techniques. So in your financial days, you know, there might have been two or three techniques that you would use on these time series signals. We have over a dozen different algorithms that fit different types of signals. Uh, so we had to design them and implement them. And obviously, because our system is completely unsupervised, we also had to design algorithms that know how to choose the right one to every signal that comes in. Uh, and so we had to design that algorithm as well. And this the, is on the, the algorithm the, side. The, uh, it's unsupervised because literally people just start handing you uh, handing you their metrics without any label. So you then you start have to having to uh, give them uh, uh, good uh, good recommendations based on this unlabeled metric. Exactly, without them, and, and they can't. Even if they knew, they wouldn't know how to give us a, a correct label because they know what they're measuring, but they don't know anything about the algorithms behind the scene. The system is not meant for data scientists; it's meant for end users that are, you know, business analysts. Uh, it could be developers. Uh, it could be uh, uh, support teams. They have no clue what our algorithms doing. All they care about is the, res- the end result. So they wouldn't even know what to tell me about the data even if we ask them so so we have to have the system learn by itself all aspects of it and that so is a do challenge you, um, do you literally so you literally analyze every time series that goes through but you also i would imagine you also try to detect relationships correlations between these time series right and this is the second uh, the second phase of learning 
so anomaly, when you have millions of time series and you're measuring a large ecosystem, there are relationships between the time series and their relationship, the relationships and anomalies between different signals do tell a story. Uh, if I'm looking at the number of users in a system and it dropped, uh, and then I see that there is also latency in a certain component that increased, the fact that I see them together uh, gives me a story. Each one by itself might might not give me the story. So, so you, we have to learn the relationships. This, uh, you surface these in the user interface so people can see. Exactly, exactly. So we surface that, but there are there are a set of uh, learning algorithms behind the scene that do this correlation automatically. And again, we cannot assume that the users will give us the input of what is related to to what because a often they don't know, and B, even if they don't know, it's very cumbersome to try to give you that information. So there's another uh, uh, thing that I can uh, cite from my finance days, which is the no this notion of robustness, right? So mm -hmm. as uh, many listeners out there know, anytime you invest in something, there's this, this, there's this disclaimer which says, uh, past performance <laughs> is not a guarantee of future performance. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, what do you guys do to address kind of uh, uh, kind of this? Maybe there's like a regime switching or systemic change in some of these metrics. Right. So, so all of the all of our algorithms are adaptive. So they they take in samples and basically adapt themselves over time to fit. Uh, the sample. So let's say there is a regime change. It might trigger an anomaly, but if it stays in a different regime, it will learn that as the new normal. Uh, and we actually, our system is, all our algorithms are completely online, which means they, they adapt themselves as new samples come in. This actually addresses the second question of the, the second part of the first question, which was scale. Right. Um, so so we know we have to be adaptive. We want to track 100% of the metrics. So it's not a case where you can collect a month of data, learn some model, put it in production, and, and then everything is great and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to relearn anything. We assume that we have to relearn everything all the time because things change all the time. Uh, and, it, and they do. We see that all the time. Uh, so when we designed our architecture, to, we said we have to update all the time. We have to be online, uh, online, and we want to be a hundred percent. We want to cover all of the data. So basically, what we did, which I think is very unique and very different from a lot of systems I have seen, is we put the learning algorithms inside the data injection process. So a lot of systems would first grab the data, store it somewhere, and then apply some learning algorithms on it, and then apply the models they've learned into uh, the data flow. But our learning and our models all sit in the injection of the data. As data flows into the system from wherever it comes from, forever, which, whichever sensor it comes from, uh, the models get used and updated with every new sample. And that is quite unique and lets us scale because now we don't have to store the data, read it out, apply some, you know, first reading out a lot of data from a database take, can, can take a very heavy load on any database, no matter how big and fast it is. So we don't have to do that because we've done all the learning as the data flowed into the system with every new sample that comes in. So, every, so a lot of our learning is online, uh, models are applied in the data ingest 
which means we don't do a lot of database queries. We just write, mostly write into the database, and we handle everything uh, as that data flows into the system. Now, having said that, uh, there's still a lot of uh, technical details and IP involved because uh, it's one thing to just describe it at a high level that you're doing a lot of uh, uh, analytics at the point of ingestion, but uh, mm -hmm. to scale it across uh, many, many metrics. Uh, and bear in mind, listeners, that uh, uh, some of the analytics involve uh, uh, multiple time series, right? These correlations. Right. Yeah, so there's still a lot of uh, uh, technical implementation and actually a lot of, you have to think a lot of these things through carefully in order to do it right. Yes, yes. So, so we, we leverage, so what we put together in our system uh, is a, a variety of components. Let us do that at scale. Uh, the front-end servers that do all the learning are things that we've built ourselves, but uh, we, use, uh, we use in our backend something like a database system called Cassandra, which is an open source. Uh, we use Elasticsearch for some metadata. Um, we use Kafka for, for handling events. But again, the events they handle are, are, are more around anomalies, which is already a much smaller subset of the data the, the actual data flow. So let's say you have a million metrics and you send a sample for all these million every minute. Uh, out of those, only a fraction are, a very small fraction are anomalous at any given time. And therefore, the parts that handle the anomalies, um, they don't need to be as large. Even though they do a lot of uh, computation, it's only on a very small fraction of the data because by definition, anomalies are rare. Um, so handling the anomalies can be done uh, very high scale once you do the learning uh, in the ingest. And at some point, I guess, uh, you guys might start even using Spark. Exactly. <laughs> so today, today we, when we started out, we, we thought whether to use Spark or not. Uh, we decided that uh, it wasn't mature enough yet. Uh, uh, this was about a year and a half ago. Um, but at some point, we might start using that as well uh, as part of the basic. Uh, so we'll build on top of that our algorithms uh, that will leverage leverage the, the Spark capabilities for doing the basic uh, data flow. So it's also it's also might be useful to kind of emphasize that while we are talking about advanced analytics, machine learning at, at massive scale, at the end of the day. Uh, you, as you as you point out, the end user is not a data scientist; it's a business right. analyst. So it has to be. You have to provide them information that's uh, actionable and useful. Exactly, and that's uh, yeah, and that's that's a challenge both from the algorithm side, but also from the UX side. I mean, the system has to be very accessible and very easy to understand. And that that's actually not not a it's it's not a simple challenge at all. Making anomalies accessible for somebody who they don't care about anomalies for the sake of anomalies. They want to ha to do something with that to to understand it quickly, to understand whether they have to take some action and and which action to take. So making that accessible. Part of it we try we solve using algorithms. The second part is using uh, a great user experience uh, interface for doing it. But definitely the the user interface is informed by the analytics. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely driven by the analytics. So uh, we, I talked about the anomalies board, the ano board. This is where people just, you know, they want to see it most of the time empty unless the anomalies provide an opportunity uh, rather than an issue. So making that accessible, we have a concept of anomaly maps where we actually show them what are, we take all the anomalies and we show them highlight, you know, where, where are these anomalies originating from to help them isolate and, and investigate to find the root cause for any anomaly really quickly. Uh, whether it's, you know, technical or it relates to a certain country, certain release, certain, there are all sorts of things that, uh, that could be the cause of an anomaly. So has your, uh, were your early days in signal processing, have they come into use? Uh, with yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, definitely. So, so for, let me give you one simple example. Uh, there are a lot of metrics that have uh, uh, kind of seasonal patterns in them. So things that behave uh, regularly at the daily level, weekly level, six-hour level, twelve-hour level, all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, seasonal patterns. Detecting that, we actually use signal processing methods, a lot of filtering, a lot of smoothing to to actually be able to automatically detect that there is a seasonal pattern. So and use it in our learning algorithms. So, yeah, I'm happy that I came back to it I, uh, I, because uh, I always liked signal processing. So I imagine, keep I imagine Ira, um, uh, hiring a data scientist for a large company like HP is very different uh, than hiring a data scientist for a startup like Anadot. So uh, what kinds of skills do you think uh, are, you more, are you more interested in these days in terms of uh, on the hiring side? So first of all, the, uh, what I, and this is something I also looked at at HP. I don't think I, uh, it changed a lot in that regard. When I look at a data scientist, I look at somebody's first very capable in terms of uh, uh, the background of machine learning. But also, I think this may be a little bit different than corporate research and corporate way of thinking. The person has to have a notion of of what how do people use it the end customers because it cannot be disconnected we cannot build algorithms without thinking how do people use it does it help them how would they consume the result and will be will they be able to consume the results so we have to be practical in that sense uh, and and when i look for somebody i look for somebody who is not just brilliant with algorithms but because just developing an algorithm for the sake of a brilliant algorithm doesn't help anybody. We have to think about, does it solve a real problem for a customer? And, and I believe that a good data scientist always thinks about that as well. So more, more, uh, would you say that many of your uh, uh, customers of Anadot, uh, that they're really interested in real-time, low-latency information, or is that just kind of a, a buzzword? <laughs> uh, great question. So yeah, we do see them requiring it because this is what they they don't have. They, so today they don't they have the the latency already, and we we can help with even with the things that are not real time by looking at everything. But we do see them making decisions, business decisions on a much faster scale. I almost it's almost you can call it operational business decisions. Um, so and, and without it they would either they they often miss opportunities so uh, we see people look at their at their uh, uh, all sorts of rates of users coming in or purchasing things purchasing ads 
And based on the anomalies they see in that, they actually make business decisions really quickly, like uh, move more traffic to this uh, publisher because we see that he's successful. Uh, stop uh, traffic to a publisher because we suspect there is fraud. This is in the ad tech world. In the industrial IoT, we see the use case of uh, uh, stopping a manufacturing machine because it's not calibrated. Now, if it's not real time, if it's any any minute that it comes late, you actually manufacture more parts that are faulty, and then you have to throw them away, or you have to recall them if you missed it altogether, which does happen. So yeah, we do see a lot of use cases for real time, so and talk, this is where we excel in. You talked about two uh, very different things there: the IoT, uh, IoT use case, smart nation, industrial internet, mm-hmm. and then ad tech. So where do you uh, where do you sit in these uh, in this uh, uh, discussion between domain-specific applications or generalized solutions? Do, do you think that uh, you have to tune uh, solutions to particular domains? Great question. So, so when we started, we purposely wanted to make something that is generic, that is not one domain-specific, and see whether we can succeed in that. Because we, we, I strongly believed in that we can build something that can succeed in that. So far, we've seen a variety of companies from various domains. And honestly, we, we, with the dozens of algorithms that we've built, we see that it, it's not that different from one domain to another. There, the differences are not very large. The, the, there is no domain-specific tuning that, that we've had to do. Sometimes there were customer-specific tuning that we've had to do, but it wasn't a domain-specific tuning. Uh, most domains, most metrics that we've seen you know, fall under the broad categories that we've identified uh, quite early on, uh, and they fit it well. So, so far, uh, and we've seen dozens of companies from various domains, uh, we believe that it is, it is possible, we know that it is possible to build uh, a generic system that will fit a lot of them. The main difference between the different domains is how do you make it accessible to them. Right. Um, and again, uh, we've built something that is, uh, we believe is generic enough that makes it easy for any analyst from any domain to understand their results as long as they know what they're measuring. So you talked uh, you talked about a lot about the end user being a business analyst, but mm-hmm. you also earlier mentioned this notion of unsupervised in the sense that right. uh, uh, you you can have an algorithm that basically starts uh, detecting patterns and learning right away. So at some point, as as let's say I'm a, I'm a company, I start using your system, and then over time you start re- you start learning about how the users are actually. Uh, reacting to what you display. Uh, so over time, uh, as your system learns more and gets better, maybe you start redu- uh, maybe companies will start thinking, well, maybe we can reduce the number of uh, analysts. So the, the role of humans in this pipeline gets reduced. So you get, uh, you get a 100% automated system. So I'm not talking next week, but I'm talking uh, further down the road. What do you think about that uh, notion so so i do think that it, i mean we're already seeing it somewhat in, in in some places where uh certain types of anomalies are mapped to actions that are taken automatically uh by systems but, uh, um, but uh, first uh, the companies 
uh, want to see the system in action first before right. they make right. Yeah. Yes. So, so first, yeah, obviously, uh, like any other learning system, you want to see it in action. You want to make sure that it's catching the right things uh, and that uh, and what actions are taken from it. Uh, but we see some examples from our customers where, in, in for certain anomalies and certain metrics, they've seen enough to to automate the action that it will take. It could be uh, things like, I mean, some of the things are stopping a campaign uh, because uh, they see from the anomalies that there are strong indications of fraud until somebody goes and look at it, uh, but stop the bleeding of a campaign. Uh, in manufacturing, similar, similar type of things where you would stop a process from continuing uh, until somebody takes a closer look. This is the, the kind of the, the first sprouts of this automation. And I do believe that as it moves along, a lot of these uh, findings of anomalies uh, could be mapped into automated actions of, you know, it could go from scaling out of systems to uh, stopping of systems to ordering of a new part. Um, and and it is realizable, and we we start seeing the sprouts of it uh, from our customers already. And now it, it's not that it's going to replace people. I think it will free up these analysts to make other decisions, to take them away from uh, looking at the day to day and reacting to the, to the day to day, and rather more analysis of the future of what the company needs to do and of the type of things that you think analysts should do most of the time, not just reacting to the operational day-to-day, -day. let a system automate that, but rather make the plans of what should be the next feature, what should be the next market we go after, uh, where do we make the, the advertisements campaigns for our product uh, tomorrow, and it will free them up to do those type of works. Sounds like uh, at a high level you have a system that the, that maps into some important metrics, right? So like, uh, I don't know, with uh, with an advertising campaign revenue or whatever. Impressions, it is. clicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And, or whatever it is. And then uh, I would imagine then uh, um, what one of the things that uh, it brings to the table is it's able to surface, let's say, drivers for certain metrics, right? So, one, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, before when you had to manually look at the data, maybe you didn't quite understand why is this metric changing? Why is exactly. this anomaly happening, right? Right. So I, I, I would imagine that there's some kind of aha moments there too, right? Exactly. Yes. And, and we see, I think we see that constantly every day. We see it uh, ourselves as well, because we, we also collect our own metrics. So I, I look over time at the performance of our machine learning algorithms uh, using our machine learning algorithms. So I detect anomalies on how many anomalies did we detect for our customers? Try to wrap your head around that. Um, and, and, and I detect issues with our algorithms using our own algorithms. And in the future, maybe our algorithms can actually fix themselves and, 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 and tune themselves based on their own internal monitoring of themselves, so this, which could uh, this, be awesome. This is starting to sound like uh, you know, reinforcement learning and some of these things that are uh, uh, being used in kind of these narrow AI applications, right? Where, right, where right. system starts learning in some cases unsupervised and mm -hmm. then just uh, uh, keeps learning based on some kind of feedback loop. Exactly. So at some point, then uh, I think uh, for uh, an application like yours, you can imagine like 
uh, intelligent agents that can handle many of these routine uh, decisions, the way you describe exactly. mapping actions, right? So. Exactly. And this is this is the the I would call it, I called it Holy Grail two years ago. I think it's it's uh, it's achievable. Not tomorrow, not in a year, not in two, but probably in three, four, five years. I think it is it is achievable for a lot of the a lot of the things we see today. The the kind of the issues that our system detects today. So then, at some point, then also there's the possibility. I guess this is true even when you have humans, right? So the humans make mistakes, so the system will make a mistake. Yes. And uh, so I, I think that's just par for the course. But I guess uh, one of the things I was uh, trying to uh, reinforce earlier, before we talked about reinforcement learning, was this notion, was this notion actually that uh, because your system can actually uh, uh, look at things at a much, much larger scale, uh, I would imagine that at some point it will uncover something fundamental that uh, a, a business driver that maybe some of these companies who have had to rely on humans just looking at individual metrics uh, will be un- incapable of doing at this point. Right. Yeah, I, I believe so too. We have some early indications of that, but you know, this is this is uh, this is still a little bit futuristic. I. We do, we do see that the fact that we find relationships between different KPIs, even finding those relationships and discovering in the, discovering them and showing it to a user, even that is already often something they are not aware of and are surprised to see, um, which is quite cool. I mean, we've seen, just to give you a few examples, from, from the IoT space, we've seen experts in a company that have worked there for for 20 years building a certain machine uh very complex machines but you know been there forever from almost day one from that machine and our system learns from data shows them some relationships between various aspects of that machine and they are surprised to see it and then when they think about it and go back they realize oh yeah that's true and that completely changes their way of thinking about their own machine, which they designed and helped design and worked on it for 20 years. So that's just one example. And when you're talking about a business that keeps changing, if you're measuring all sorts of business KPIs, nobody knows the relationships between things. They can only conjecture about them, but they don't really know it. So by the way, and having uh, a system showing you that, it's actually very, very useful. By the way, in closing, uh, this, uh, this notion of the feedback loop where... Uh, Kind of in an AI-like manner, you're using some kind of reinforcement learning mechanism to constantly improve what you do. Was mm-hmm. this something that uh, you had in mind from the get-go, or is this something you kind of realized is possible later on? So we had it. In, we had it in mind, but we 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 thought it would come at a much later stage than it than it did because we saw we 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 are able to move fast enough. Uh, to start injecting it. So so it's like any unsupervised method. So uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, I came from a world of semi-supervised learning where you have some labels, but most of the data is is unlabeled. And, uh, and I think this is the reality for us as well. We would get some feedback from users, but it will be a fraction of the feedback that you would need if you wanted to apply supervised learning methods. So getting that feedback is actually very, very helpful. Um, again, because I'm from the semi-supervised learning world, I always thought about, I always try to see where I can get some 
some inputs from users from or from some oracle that gives me the ground truth. Um, but I always, I never want to rely on it being there. Uh, it just needs to help. So I was very happy that we were able to implement it uh, quite quickly. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's fascinating because in many ways, uh, uh, so a lot of the excitement around AI centered around uh, these AI systems uh, doing well in in games, right? Uh, but in right. games, in games you have that constant feedback loop, right? Uh, right, and it's a closed world. I mean, the game, the rules are very, are clear. They might be very complicated, but they are they can be mapped out. Right, 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 right. It's interesting. So, yeah. So this has been great, and uh, thank you, Ira. Thank you very much, Ben. You can follow Ira Cohen on Twitter at Ira Ira Cohen. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.